Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Porter. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Been looking forward to our talk. I'm talking to Porter Arisman, currently the author of Alibaba World and also a consultant to e-commerce companies. Porter, I just want to start off by talking about your story. How did you decide to end up in China? Yeah, you know, I came on a family trip to Asia when I was about 16. My mother brought me and my sister over and I realized more than half the world's in Asia, so I had almost a responsibility to spend some time here. So I came back and studied Mandarin in 1994, 95, and I got sort of hooked. And so I decided to stick around and uh, develop a career in China. Mm. And then you went to work for a media company, right? Yeah, I, well, actually, I, my first job was a stint working at China Central Television on a travel program. And then uh, after I got an MBA, I came back to China. I worked at Ogilvy and Mather in Beijing doing advertising and PR. And I was helping a lot of international internet companies come into the China market. Then I saw all of my clients having so much fun with their own startups that I decided that I wanted to join a startup. But I ended up, instead of helping a foreign company come into China, I found Alibaba and decided it would be more fun to help a Chinese company go global. Mm. And when were you with Alibaba then? So I joined Alibaba in the spring of 2000. It was when I interviewed, they were just beginning to move out of their apartment that the company was founded in. And then uh, I joined them right when they moved into an office. And I was there from 2000 to 2008. And what was your role in Alibaba then? Well, it was fun because it changed every year for eight years. So for a couple of years, I was head of the international website, Alibaba.com. Uh, I was also head of the international marketing and some business development. And throughout my time at Alibaba, I was also responsible for the international PR, and I was a company spokesperson. So I was very busy when we were having a lot of our battles with big U.S. companies like eBay. And then subsequently, you left Alibaba and started basically going into making documentaries and also writing a book. So I guess I've actually watched your documentary first, Crocodile in the Yangtze, which actually tells the insider story to Alibaba. And subsequently, you also published the book Alibaba World. So what are the primary motivations behind writing the book and also filming the documentary? Yeah, when I was wrapping up my time at Alibaba in 2008, I just felt I was lucky enough to witness a very inspiring story and be a part of this company that grew from an apartment into what's now the world's largest e-commerce company. I sat down in my last week with uh, Jack Ma and I explained to him I wanted to tell the story, the good and the bad, the successes and the mistakes of what it was like being an American working in a Chinese internet company. And I was really fortunate that I think because he was a teacher in his early part of his career, he had an open mind and felt Alibaba had a sort of obligation to let someone tell the story. So my main motivation was to inspire entrepreneurs, to let them see how Alibaba uh, not only had succeeded, but what mistakes the company had made 
And so my main motivation was just to tell this story and share it with entrepreneurs. And, and I made the documentary really completely independent of Alibaba. I disappeared for three years, made the documentary. But last spring, a publisher contacted me and asked me if I was interested in writing a book. And it was funny because this whole project started out as a book idea seven years ago, and I had an old proposal. So I dusted it off, updated it, and uh, I was lucky that they uh, gave me an offer to write a book. So the thing I like about the book is I didn't have video of everything that happened in Alibaba's history, but I had a lot of uh, interesting anecdotes and stories. And so the book, I was able to put all of those into uh, the book. In fact, I have just finished reading the book. It kind of extends some of the stories when you were actually talking about in the documentary itself. So I probably wanted to ask, how did you manage to convince Jack Ma to let you publish some of the internal videos, particularly like some of the interesting chats that you all have in terms of talking about strategy and also sharing some of these anecdotes to the public? Well, you know, it all came down to that last week when I was at the company and I just explained to them. And the company, before I left, they gave me some archival footage. But really, the the vast majority of the footage is footage I got from outside sources. So Jack kind of gave me his blessing. But to be honest, I don't think he ever thought I would really do it, make a film or write a book. Uh, he gave me his blessing to do that. But the ground rules were I could tell the story in any way I want. So like I said, I disappeared for three years when I made the documentary. And then the book, I just went ahead and wrote. He once seven years ago said he wouldn't have a problem if I wrote a book. And, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you you learn how to take yes for an answer and you don't come back, ask again and again. <laughs> and so I just went ahead and wrote the book. And uh, actually, just last week, I, I sent him a copy, but he had no idea what would be in the book. Uh, so kind of I want to sort of uh, go and take a step back and talk about Alibaba in general. I mean, you were with them during the kind of startup days before you become the Goliath of today. So how was the culture of Alibaba like in the past? Yeah, I, w I describe Alibaba as a, it's like a Silicon Valley company with Chinese characteristics. Uh, one of the things that attracted me was that it was a very open culture where people were encouraged to try things and even if it meant making mistakes to just go ahead and take action and try and innovate new things. The culture was very innovative, very open. It was helpful that Jack and some of the co-founders were teachers and so I think they, they encouraged people to share their ideas and they wanted to see people grow and develop and become great managers themselves. So. Uh, it's very open. I think a big difference between Silicon Valley companies and people would see this if they saw my documentary is obviously in China, people like company events and tend to be much more group oriented. And so you have these massive rallies with thousands of uh, employees in a stadium. And that's not something you usually see in the Silicon Valley uh, environment. And to be for me, Alibaba, it felt more like a family, like the the way people work together and then after work, it was a really tight knit, close group. And it was a lot more fun than maybe working in some Silicon Valley companies where it's a little more individualistic. So tell me a little bit about some of the interesting anecdotes during your tenure in Alibaba, particularly maybe sharing with the readers 
some of your interactions with Jack and the founding team itself? Yeah, I think there's some big turning points in the book. I talk about when I first joined Alibaba in 2000, I joined with a lot of other international managers with very you know, fancy resumes and backgrounds. And I talk about how it was sort of funny when I first joined that some of these international managers were pulling me aside and they said, Porter, you're in charge of our PR you need to get Jack Ma out of the spotlight. This guy says things that are like off message. They're a little bit crazy. But my feeling was that what made Jack successful was just he was himself. And this is what people liked when he gave speeches or did interviews. He was just himself. He didn't always filter everything he said. And so I talk about how I personally made the decision You know, when Jack asked me, what should I say for this speech or this interview? I just said, just be yourself. I think it's good advice for any entrepreneur. It's good to study Jack Ma, but at the same time, do things your own way. Some other funny anecdotes. I talk about when we were trying to get started and grow a user base in Europe. I traveled with Jack Ma to Berlin, and we walked into a room expecting you know, 500 seats to be filled in this big, huge conference for Internet World. We saw once we arrived, there were only about three seats full. And so... I saw Jack jump on stage and give a speech to this basically empty room, but the, those three people in the room seemed to love it. And then when Jack Ma left the stage, he came to me and he said, uh, don't worry, Porter, next time we come back to uh, Europe, this place will be totally full. So I think entrepreneurs are resilient, optimistic, and they realize that, that it's a process to build up the name for a company and build up a following. And uh, I learned a lot from him about resilience. Even when I go around talking about my book or my film, in the beginning, nobody wanted to come and see it. And then suddenly, uh, especially last year, it got really hot. There were huge audiences of hundreds of people. And it. luckily, I had been through this experience once with Alibaba, so I learned from that and applied it to my own experience. One of the things I really like about the documentary is about the human moments that you have portrayed of Jack, particularly in the part where he needs to lay off the team in Silicon Valley and he called you and talked about it. What was that experience like from that anecdote alone itself? Yeah, that's one of the things I like about writing the book is I got to go into much more detail for these things because I didn't, didn't have footage of it. So one of the things in the Alibaba's world I talk about is how Jack and I we traveled to the U.S., and uh, the it was a time when the company looked like it would be running out of money even if we didn't cut back on our international staff. And so we traveled to the U.S. Uh, I ended up staying in this Alibaba group house with a bunch of employees that had been sent over from China to be based in Silicon Valley. And then I woke up and Jack and I had to go. And, you know, when you're in the early days of a startup, you really don't face any tough times sometimes. You, things were going smoothly. And this was a turning point for Alibaba and I think for Jack Ma because we laid off the staff. And I think he gave me a call suddenly, unexpectedly, where it sounded like he was even tearing up a little bit um, because some of the people we'd laid off had called him and were yelling at him, really upset. And I think that was the lowest I ever saw for Jack Ma. But I think through that experience, he got tougher and he realized being a leader is about making those really tough decisions. And you have to embrace those tough decisions. That's one of the lessons I talk about in the book is 
Don't run away from tough decisions. Embrace those tough decisions. That was the turning point where Jack Ma went from realizing that he was more than a company founder, that actually he could be the CEO for the long term. And I think after that point, I never saw him, uh, his confidence questioned again. That was the only time. Wow. And actually, I was just thinking about your anecdote about the Germany experience. I think I recently saw him in Hamburg, I think, with a whole audience in a conference room filled with people. In fact, Angela Merkel was there to pre- present the gift. So that was 15 years later. From uh, that's Germany. a perfect point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. But he did say, yeah, when we come back, this place will be full. And this time it was full with a full audience, including Angela Merkel. So... That was the experience I had is seeing, you know, when Jack Ma got started, he was just some kind of people thought a crazy guy with all these dreams and talking a big game. Mm. But I saw that transformation in Jack, in the co-founders, in the company. And yeah, these things that would seem crazy. And had Jack given up in Berlin, he never would have lived to see the day where there were... uh, you know, thousands of people and Angela Merkel there to hear his speech. Yeah, it was quite an impressive. I, I saw the eight-minute speech and it was kind of talking about innovation and how to take the, all products in Europe back to China. But I think right. I wanted to talk about two very interesting times in Alibaba where you are at. And I think I'm going to separate them just for kind of an interest discussion point. So the first was regarding taking on the financing from Yahoo to basically take over Yahoo China. What are the kind of lessons that was learned in that whole discussion when Alibaba took the investment from Yahoo then? Sure. Yeah, that at the time, it was a big deal. It was a a billion dollar deal. And nowadays, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But at the time, it was. So I think for us, it was very exciting. Here we were partnering with one of the pioneers and Yahoo was one of our idols. And Jerry Yang and Jack Ma had a good relationship. So we went into it with very high hopes, but the partnership just didn't work. And there's a number of reasons. So first, I write in the book about I think that Jack Ma, as great as he was at creating a community of buyers and sellers, he didn't appreciate how to build a good search engine. And so we had bought Yahoo China as part of the deal. And we made a number of strategic errors. And I think Jack didn't really know how to build a search engine. In the short term, I think that's why we struggled. But in the long term, there's two reasons why that partnership didn't work. Number one was because Yahoo was just going sideways. They had stopped innovating. They had stopped really doing amazing things. And meanwhile, Alibaba continued to grow and innovate so that Alibaba became bigger than Yahoo, which is pretty rare when a company invests into a company and then the, the company they've invested in outgrows them by you know several times. And then the other one is that we had By doing the deal with Yahoo, we stepped into some political landmines where, you know, e-commerce is politically neutral, so the government is pretty hands-off. But teaming up one of the largest U.S. internet players with one of the largest China internet players, sort of, it was inevitable it would fall apart. If you look at everything that's happened with the politics between China and the U.S. and Edward Snowden and hacking and the spying scandals between the countries... You kind of realize that now, if you're a U.S. internet company, you kind of have to lean towards the U.S. government. If you're a Chinese internet company, you have to lean towards the Chinese government. 
And there's not really room for a marriage between a major U.S. internet company and a major Chinese internet company anymore. Mm. But the financing from Yahoo also did help Yahoo later. I mean, currently, without that Alibaba stake, they were unable to function with the stakeholders' interest in their share price, basically. It really helped uh, Yahoo, that's for sure. I don't know if it really helped Alibaba that much. Yahoo, for the last few years, the only thing that saved their stock has been this investment in Alibaba. So you're right. I think it was a great investment for them, but it was not a very good relationship between Yahoo and Alibaba. Mm. I think the more interesting discussion I wanted to talk to you was about the challenge of eBay in the Chinese market. Maybe you can start by talking a little bit about what actually happened during that period of time and then how what prompted Jack to eventually start off Taobao and successfully making it to take off by eating away eBay's market share in China. Sure. So here's first of all why I think this is important. Like on the one hand, sure, it just looks like competition between two companies. That happens all the time. But the battle between Alibaba and eBay is really the moment when the center of gravity of e-commerce globally shifted from west to east. And this was a turning point because the, sto- the history is that Alibaba.com is a community of wholesale buyers and sellers that do deals online. And obviously eBay was more uh, small businesses and consumers doing deals online. So they had similar business models, and it was sort of inevitable they would bump into each other. But when eBay came to China, they were growing in China. Jack Ma, one day, he pulled me aside and he said, Porter, I've made a decision that three years from now people will say is the smartest decision I ever made. And it turned out to be his decision to challenge eBay directly and build a consumer shopping marketplace uh, for the China market. And so... The interesting thing, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. It looks like it was inevitable that Alibaba would win. But when we started challenging eBay, nobody seemed to believe we would win. Nobody took us seriously. It was just assumed that the U.S. Internet company would come into China, use its uh, technology, its resources, its marketing skills, and sort of crush all competition. So... We went through, and the book goes into a lot of detail behind the scenes of all the strategies and the little tricks that we did to uh, outsmart eBay in the China market. And, you know, the, the main lesson I would say is there really was no trick to it. It was what we did was we just built a much better website for the China market. And we forgot about everything that had happened in the U.S. And we just built what was good for the Chinese consumers and the Chinese shoppers. And eBay basically brought their U.S. model to the China market and thought it was somehow superior. That's the the basic lesson is that we just focused on building something for China. But then the other lessons in the book talk about how we... We publicly declared war on eBay and a lot of the inside baseball, the back and forth between us and eBay, how we were fighting at the same time eBay was trying to buy uh, Taobao. I think it was a masterful kind of, number one, we listened to the customer, built what was great for them. But number two, I think people can learn a lot from Jack Ma as a strategist, where I think his influence of martial arts stories growing up as a kid taught him how to 
outsmart a competitor that was bigger than he is. Mm. I thought that there was some asymmetric warfare going on, particularly how your leverage on international news that actually caught eBay on their stock prices. I mean, with the marketing that they're losing market share in China. Yeah, you know, Jack, I think everyone in mainland China grows up learning about uh, the Red Army and the tactics Mao Zedong used through guerrilla warfare. You know, there was a time when uh, the Red Army in China was simply following the Soviet advisors' approach. And in their uh, revolutionary war, they were just losing soldiers left and right because they tried a head-on approach of just battling the same way the, the opponents were. But Mao Zedong brought in a more of a guerrilla approach. I think everyone in China grows up understanding the idea of guerrilla warfare. And Jack Ma was smart enough to realize eBay was bringing in about $150 million. And in emails to me, their PR head was really threatening us and saying, hey, we're going to invest this. I hope you guys are ready to lose a lot of money. But through this asymmetrical warfare where really we realized one thing, that eBay probably couldn't stand the pressure from Wall Street investors because they were a public company and because they seemed... Um, to care a lot about what investors thought. And so we did a number of things to make it tough for eBay with their Wall Street investors. And we played the long game and um, kept our website free for three years. And in a way, we used eBay's strength against them. And these are some of the tactics I talk about in the book. Mm. And of course, Taobao successfully take off. I think you give them another three years free and subsequently, I think eBay's market share was almost gone down to nothing. I guess the most interesting part about the book that I've read was kind of the Alibaba and the 40 lessons. I know that it's kind of the analogy of Alibaba and the 40 thieves. So I kind of read a couple of interesting ones that I like, like Dream Big, Really Big, build a company of at least 102 years, uh, at least. Today is tough, but the the day after tomorrow is beautiful and learn from competitors, but never copy them. What are your recommendations to the audience out there from the Alibaba and the 40 lessons? Yeah, I, that's probably my favorite chapter because I think the whole book, when people are reading the book, they hopefully don't realize it, but they're learning a lot. But the 40 lessons basically draws on all of the experiences in the book and distills out the important lessons that I learned personally. So things like dream big, really big, it's so easy to say. And you hear these kind of cliches a lot, but I think Jack Ma, it's a perfect example. You know, the, the idea that he would have thought someday he'd be giving a speech in front of uh, the German uh, chancellor, you know, it's, uh, and I, I, even now I realize that the biggest limitations in achieving something are the limitations we set on ourselves. And even I have to catch myself sometimes. I think I dream big. Like I came up with an idea to make a documentary film and never made a film and traveled around with it to festivals. That's dreaming big maybe, but Jack Ma dreams really big. And he went and he, he created a film production company, Alibaba studios to make all kinds of films. So even now, I'm always trying to catch myself to make sure I'm dreaming big enough. And I think, yeah, there's the lessons are a lot of these things that are sort of cliches we learn in kindergarten. But it was encouraging for me to know that in real life, that yes, even these 
cliches in the business world uh, turn out to be true. Mm. So do you have some of those that you want to recommend or the ones that I mentioned are just nice enough? Uh, I really like those. I'd say maybe one of my favorite one is uh, just never underestimate yourself. This is something when I joined Alibaba in 2000, at that time, Jack Ma was telling people that he was going to leave the company in four years. And the reason he gave is he said that he was trained as an English teacher and he would have to hand over the company to professional managers because he and his co-founders didn't have professional business experience. Well, they learned over time and during some of those things I mentioned earlier, they came to realize that even they, without business experience, were capable of running the business and growing it to a huge company. And so he shifted from thinking he couldn't be a CEO to realizing he could. And I saw the same thing with the founders, you know, ordinary people with no special backgrounds. And they proved over time that they were capable. So I think never underestimate yourself. And of course, don't underestimate your colleagues. A lot of people look outside their company for answers, but actually a lot of times the people around them are the ones that can grow and develop into great employees. And then the other one related to that lesson is uh, never overestimate your competitors. So a big company looks really strong and powerful from the outside, but because they're a big company, they have a lot of weaknesses that you can't see. And so... Some people are afraid to start a business because they think, oh, there's already a company doing that. I can't do it. But, you know, it's more important to be best than first a lot of times. And so never underestimate yourself and also don't overestimate your competitors or the challenges in front of you. Mm. So in your observations, how has Alibaba transformed after you have left? Yeah, I watched it from the outside and, you know, I still kind of have a sense of, what they're doing just from what I read. And the interesting thing, when I left in 2008, I was really confident that they could grow into the world's largest e-commerce company. I thought it was their market to lose and that you know eBay had pulled out of the market. They really didn't have any strong competition at that time. And so over the last seven years, they've grown into kind of what I expected, which is the world's largest uh, e-commerce company. And I think that they've proven something that we were saying a long time, but also people didn't really believe is that in an emerging market like China, uh, it takes longer for an e-commerce company to build up. But once it builds up, it becomes much more important to that market than e-commerce was to the West. And so what you're seeing now is e-commerce in China has leapfrogged beyond the West. And the most interesting thing, if I think of Alibaba's legacy, is yes, they've created this big company and ecosystem within China. But now when I travel around, I've traveled to 25 countries with my film and my book, it's no longer people, no longer are people comparing themselves to Amazon or eBay. They now say that they they're creating the Alibaba of India or the Alibaba of Indonesia. And so the Alibaba effect, whether Alibaba succeeds or fails in the long run, the effect is that they cracked the code on how to make e-commerce work in developing countries. And I think it's ushering in a golden era, not just in China, but 
throughout the developing world. Mm. So I think one of the interesting points you sort of brought up here is that Alibaba started off with a culture of being a global company. So that's why today they are kind of the largest e-commerce player in the world. But for most Chinese companies, they're still very localized and very driven to the domestic markets. What are your thoughts kind of to them that how would they be able to globalize themselves for the markets out there? Yeah, I think that for now, um, so many companies in China, there's a big opportunity in China. So they don't see always the need to go global. But we've now entered a new era where more and more companies from China are looking to go global. And, you know, one of the reasons I joined Alibaba is because I looked at the history of Japan and Japan started as mostly Western companies going into Japan. And then around the 80s or so, a lot of Japanese companies started to go global. Well, China is at about that same point right now. And I think that's the one thing Alibaba has that other Chinese companies don't always have is they have a very international mindset. Because Jack Ma was an English teacher, he was curious about the outside world, learned the language, but more importantly, learned the ideas and absorbed them and made friends with foreigners. So the number one thing for Chinese companies that want to go global is their senior management has to have a global mindset. It doesn't mean you have to go live overseas. Jack Ma never lived overseas, but it means you have to be open to new ideas. You have to understand the world around you, um, participate in conferences, and become a part of the global business community because that's the only way that Chinese companies can bridge the culture gap is by having a senior management that has a truly international mindset. Hmm. I have a very curious question. Do you still keep in touch with everyone in Alibaba? Uh, it's funny because I, I would say I'm friendly with them, but I have intentionally kept a bit of a distance. You know, I think to be able to tell the story in my own way, I just do everything I can to preserve my independence. So I still have a couple friends there. We don't really talk about business so much, especially because they're a public company. I do, you know, I saw Jack Ma in Paris. We both happened to be in Paris uh, last year, uh, last spring. And uh, because we were there, we met up for lunch and there's a lot of laughter and a lot of uh, fun. Um, so I think that we will always be friends. But for the time being, I'm keeping a distance just so I can make sure I'm uh, telling the story with my own voice and um, have a healthy independence from Alibaba. Mm. You think that he's still the same person you have met many years ago? I think so. Yeah, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, how uh, when I was watching Alibaba on its IPO day, I was in the U.S. watching it on TV and it was really exciting for me. And Jack Ma got on to uh, CNBC and they asked him, who's your hero? And he said, uh, my hero is Forrest Gump. You know, this is not something that most CEOs would say. CEOs are always trying to be on message and Frankly, it's kind of boring to watch a CEO get interviewed, but this really shocked the CNBC crew that here is a guy who just had the largest IPO in history, and he said his hero is Forrest Gump. And I watched, and I thought to myself, well, it's nice to see that it's the same Jack Ma, and he's uh, just being himself, just like I you know, thought he should do. 
back in 2000 when I joined the company when so many people were trying to get him to change. What are your next projects after Alibaba World then? I'm very excited to say I just signed a second book. And this book, it's on a similar topic, but it's broadening it out. So uh, the book will be, it's tentatively called The New E-Commerce Titans. And it'll be about uh, e-commerce in uh, emerging markets. So including China, but uh, India, uh, Africa, uh, Latin America, Middle East. And so, you know, I've traveled around. I've consulted to companies in Nigeria, in India, Vietnam. And um, what I'm seeing is that just the same things that happen in China are happening in all these countries. And so that's the focus of my next book is talking about uh, the e-commerce boom in emerging markets. Wow. So I'm looking forward to talk to you again when that book is out then. That's great. I hope we get a chance. Mm. So tell me, where can my audience find you? Uh, yeah, so they can find me on a Facebook. Um, I don't use Twitter so much, but um, they can find me on Facebook or and also on my film has a Facebook page, Crocodile and the Yangtze. And then if they have something that they want to discuss or want me to come speak, then uh, my email is on the website for Crocodile and the Yangtze and they can get in touch and these days, I fill my time with writing a book and speaking to different groups, uh, traveling around. Wow. Okay. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia or analyzeasia.com. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes and SoundCloud. And please leave a rating, one star to five star. We are always ready to take your feedback. So once again, Porter, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thanks. It's an honor to be here.